with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello everyone, you're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast bringing you this sports show. What's it like to cover baseball for Yahoo Sports? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 80 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Friday nights, both on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text in to the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The adage, stick to sports, has been a go-to retort of choice towards sports media and sports outlets trying to toe the line between children's games played by adults and real-world issues. ESPN recently tried to avoid some internet outrage and backlash that could have stemmed from its broadcast of a University of Virginia football game and instead created further criticisms from the mad online crowd. What a time to be alive, to say the least. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. (laughs) 
The line between the sports world and real world is a fine one, with many sports fans content on living inside a bubble of children's games as an escape from the chaos found in day-to-day life outside of it. The stick-to-sports crowd longs for a world where their voice would be heard and politics would be left out of it. It's a tricky spot for the media and outlets in sports, who now have to watch their P's and Q's to avoid any added criticisms of their coverage. ESPN did just that in predicting the possible backlashes that would stem from their broadcast crew, set to cover the University of Virginia football home opener against William & Mary. The game that few outside of Virginia would even remember to watch or listen to was to be broadcast by sports announcer Robert Lee who started working at ESPN in 2016 and broadcast several games throughout the year while also calling Sienna men's basketball games on radio and television for the past 17 years. However, in the wake of the recent protests in Charlottesville, Virginia, where UVA plays its home football games, ESPN decided to pull Lee from that broadcast and move him to another game. Why would an Asian-American sportscaster that you most likely were unfamiliar with until this story broke be in the news? Well, he happens to share the same name as the former general of the Confederate Army, Robert E. Lee, a man who has been dead for 147 years. ESPN released a statement on the matter, saying, quote, We collectively made the decision with Roberts to switch games as the tragic events in Charlottesville were unfolding, simply because of the coincidence of his name. In that moment, it felt right to all parties. It's a shame that this is even a topic of conversation, and we regret that who calls play-by-play for a football game has become an issue. End quote. A potentially sticky spot for the four-letter network for either scenario, as they risked also getting mocked for having Lee broadcast a game in Virginia, though jokes will surely still find their way around the internet when Lee does broadcast his new assignment of the Youngstown State game at Pittsburgh. It seems like ESPN would have been better with laughing off any potential one-day fallouts that would have come with the broadcast, which is something ESPN anchor and legend Bob Lee, who also shares a similar-sounding name with Robert E. Lee and even has the in-house nickname at ESPN of the General, found humor in, saying on Twitter, quote, Rather worried my employee ID slash pass may not admit me in the AM. Life as scripted by at Onion Sports and tweet. All of this also begs the question if other athletes or media members should hide under the covers for fear that sharing the same name as someone now viewed in a negative light would be troublesome. Should Pelican star Anthony Davis fear comparison to Jefferson Davis? Should Bo Jackson cower in fear for sharing a name with Stonewall? Will picket lines now be as unsuccessful as General George Pickett was at marching on Gettysburg? 
Or should Nebraska immediately be given a free pass to the college football playoff for playing its games in Lincoln? Hopefully, you've realized how downright preposterous all of this is. If anything, the real story here is the foolishness of the internet loudmouths, and of those more competent for even listening to them. I'm John Lund, for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to recite the Gettysburg Address. When we come back, we'll talk to a baseball writer about his career, baseball cards, and taco trucks. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text in your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, what is your most prized baseball card and why? Some quick housekeeping for what's coming up. We've got five minutes in the film room to close out the show after our interview with this week's guest. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk about Flag and Anthem. Summer is unfortunately fleeting and fall will soon be here and you can either look good to close out the former or start preparing yourself to look good for the latter. Flag and Anthem is men's clothing for guys with an expensive feel at an affordable price. I'm not really a fan of shopping for clothes and having to choose between price and quality and shipping and fit, but thankfully, Flag and Anthem eliminates all of that. They've got all sorts of options available for guys from shorts and tees to jeans and shorts and also have a brand new arrival in store for the fall for your next outfit or accessory. Go to flagandanthem.com and use discount code THEBRIDGE at checkout to receive 20% off your order. They also have free shipping and free returns so you'll be able to find the best fit for you. Again, that's flagandanthem.com. Discount code THEBRIDGE to receive 20% off your order. The night before this show airs was quite an invigorating one when the NBA blew up the world with a Kyrie trade from the Cavaliers to the Boston Celtics for Isaiah Thomas and several other players and picks. UFC fighter John Jones was also sent to the principal's office for more steroid scandal. But instead of talking about that or talking about football, which we will surely do for the next several months, it's one last ride for at least a couple of weeks with baseball. And this week's guest, Mike Oz, a baseball writer for Yahoo Sports and editor for their Big League Stew blog. And Mike is someone who always knew he wanted to write about baseball, has a pretty interesting story about eventually getting to do so after taking a different path to start his writing career. So we'll chat about what he does for Big League Stew and how he got there, the story behind one of his most well-known projects called Opening 25-Year-Old Baseball Cards, which is pretty self-explanatory but incredibly fun. 
what he's most looking forward to for the rest of the baseball season and other fun anecdotes along the way as well, including one to close out the interview in a brand new segment called Easy or Pass. Mike was very kind with his time, so this interview might be a little longer than most, but since we won't be doing much baseball talk or long-form chatter in the foreseeable future, it was nice to get to do so one last time. You can follow Mike on Twitter. He's at Mike Oz. That's M-I-K-E-O-Z. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Mike Oz. He covers baseball for Yahoo Sports and Big League Stew. Mike, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? Hey, I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. I always look forward to talking about baseball, especially when it seems to be a topic that's a little bit more popular now with the Little League World Series and the National Football League. Not quite getting there. And I wanted to start by turning back the clocks a little bit with you for starters. A lot of sports writers or people in sports media often get their start playing sports before hanging things up to cover them. How did your path get started in falling in love with baseball and knowing it was something that you wanted to cover in the future? Uh, I, I think I go back to being, I know, I know the year I fell in love with baseball for sure. It was 1986. I was growing up in the Bay Area. Um, that was the year Jose Canseco was, was a rookie. And it was, it was really easy to get swept into, you know, Canseco and the next year McGuire and the Bash Brothers and all that stuff. And, um, you know, my, my family was very was very baseballish. My grandpa, you know, I coached baseball for a long time. And um, my, my grandma was a uh, – she just loved to collect anything. So uh, once I kind of got into baseball, her and I started collecting baseball cards. So, you know, that, that also really helped. Um, so I had all these, you know, like, like my grandpa and my uncle and my cousins all like were really into baseball, like playing baseball. So, you know, of course I played baseball like as soon as I was old enough. And then, you know, with my grandma, we, we were also collecting baseball cards and, you know, going shop to shop trying to find, uh, you know, who they can take a rated rookie and, and all that. So, uh, you know, it was just kind of a, a, a perfect storm there. And, and, you know, back then was also the time when you could go to the game and then, kind of try to get the players autographs and stuff and so when you're a little kid at that point like i don't know it was really easy i think to get swept into all that was going on you know not just with the A's, but just baseball in general well we'll definitely hit on baseball cards a little bit later in yeah. the interview because i know that's a big part of what you continue to do you went to college at san jose state and like a lot of aspiring writers walked into the school newspaper to write for them but were originally told no what was that moment like for you and how were you able to give it another shot with them to get started writing about the sport? I mean, it's kind of funny in retrospect, I guess, to just assume that I could have walked into the school newspaper and they'd be like, okay, yeah, here, go, go do something. But I mean, that's kind of where I was, you know? And, and, um, but yeah, so I went in there and it was like, I think even a couple of days before school started, I made a point to go down there early and you know try to like talk to them and they're just like looked at me like i was insane you know and uh, in retrospect I, I do think it's funny but uh you know so then i just kind of went into my classes and stuff and uh started doing everything i was i'll admit i was pretty bummed for a while there because you kind of have you know like i don't know it took i think two years before i'd done enough with my pre-rec classes and was able to write for the paper i actually ended up writing for the paper a little bit early um because I think I would have I would have been able to go on the next semester, but uh, my advisor said, "Hey, you know, go talk to the sports editor and 
you know, at that point I had somebody kind of kind of advocating for me because, you know, I'm one of those people, like I knew that I wanted to do that, um, like right away, you know, like I knew in high school that was what I wanted to do. So I just kind of went for it and uh, I I was bummed, but you know, once I kind of like got that first assignment from them, like it all came back and I was really excited about it. And, um, I guess the one thing I'll say from like a writing standpoint was like, I never stopped writing stuff. I just didn't really have, you know, the, the school outlet, um, that, that was sort of early on in the internet. So I had like, in my senior year in high school, I'd taken like a very, very, very basic, like HTML class that I knew enough to kind of like have my own, like I could make my own little website. Uh, this is, and nowadays that's easier. Like I'm talking like 1987. So this, yeah, I felt like I was really, really, um, cool at that point to be able to do that and uh, so I, I would write about um like just hip-hop stuff i'm also really into music so i write about hip-hop stuff and i had i had a place um like one of the big hip-hop websites at the time which is soaj to let me write for them back then um i was also doing some stuff for like the local newspaper where i lived um so like high school games and stuff so I, I kept at it. I just, you know, like the the the, the college paper was just kind of like, what? what are you talking about? And, um, it's it's good though. I mean, you know, like it all kind of worked out. I kind of had to like learn to stick to my guns and, and not um, not kind of get all down in the dumps, you know. Fortunately, a job was offered to you right after college at the Fresno Bee, which is a newspaper in California for people that don't know. And what's interesting to me about your writing career is that the sports aspect of things were put on hold and you transitioned into pop culture, even though you were already sort of covering that, but dealing with music, the entertainment world, even eventually hosting a weekly radio show that you continue to do for a local rock station as well. Was it difficult for you to switch gears into that and enter into the world of pop culture, or had you already gotten used to it in a sense from what you're already doing? I think it was it wasn't difficult professionally. Uh, it was more difficult in a way of like telling myself that I should I should do this because again, you know, like I had approached. I think by the time I was a junior in high school, like I kind of knew that I wanted to be a sports writer, and I didn't want to be you know, just like a journalist, like I wanted to be a sports writer. So, you know, I did my, I did my couple of like newspaper internships when I was in college and, you know, like I was, I was on the right path, I thought, you know, and I, I was going to sort of go after my dream. And when I graduated college, you know, I had, I had two job offers, one of which was at the Fresno B and then one of which is at a smaller paper um, covering baseball, like minor league baseball. I didn't cover like single A baseball, which, you know, like that was kind of what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to, baseball and then i had this other job offer where I, I you know i wasn't doing what i wanted to do in my head but i you know it was a much better newspaper um you know at that point the fresno v was producing like a lot of fantastic people um you know just sort of in that span uh you know Woj Woj was working at um the fresno v before that uh john Santana was working at the fresno v at that time uh, Andy Katz had been there. There's a lot of great people. And the time around the time that I got there was when Jeff Passant got there too. So, uh, you know, they kind of had a run of, of really, you know, fantastic hires and, and kind of helping young people succeed. And so I, I, you know, I went for the better newspaper, even though I kind of had to talk myself into like writing about the topic, but I felt like, you know, going to a place where I knew they would let me write. First of all, that was a really big, really big thing. Having interned there, I knew that, you know, if, if I wanted to write like a, a really meaty story or a really long feature, I could do that. And, and they would kind of like help me along and then help me get better as a writer. And 
I feel like that was super important. So that was more important to me than, than the topic. Um, but I, I still kind of needed to like work myself through that. And I had one of my friends or my mentor in college at one point was just like, dude, why are you like, why are you even stressing about this? Like go take the better job. Like that's what, that's what you need to do. And, you know, sports will always be there. And it, it was funny that, you know, I, I did the entertainment job for a couple of years and then I thought I was never going to go back to sports because I actually loved it. Like it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it, I think it, you know, gave me a lot of opportunities to grow and do a lot of different things that I never really thought I would do. And it was great. And I um, just assumed that that's what I was going to do and not go back to sports. But, you know, like uh, 12, 13 years later, here I am. Is there a story or a project or an interview from writing there that stands out to you as a favorite or maybe one that you're most proud of looking back? Uh, all of all the things I think of first are like weird ones. I don't really think of the ones that I'm proud of. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, I got to interview a lot of cool people. So, you know, and, and at that point, like, you know, some of them are people who were kind of coming up at that time. And now we look at them, you know, like, oh my God, like, you know, I interviewed Taylor Swift at one point. I talked to Dave Chappelle, um, talked to a lot of really, really cool people. I interviewed Trent Reznor, um, uh, Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys. But a lot of the things I remember are just like how wrong they went. Like I remember interviewing Dan, Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys while my little kid, uh, at the time he was probably like six months old and he was homesick, was just screaming in the background. You know, I remember um, all the all the weird interviews. Like I remember talking to the guy from um, Train Siberian Orchestra, you know, then the Christmas, you know, kind of the, the, the oh, weird absolutely, Christmas yes. band. And like, I mean, it's just, he, he was, it seemed like he was insane. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about, man. Like, like, like he, it was, it was like LSD come to life in a conversation. And I'm just like, well, I remember talking to Bill Cosby. Like I asked Bill Cosby one question and he talked for 75 minutes. <laughs> and I'm just like, and, and like, it was a pretty mundane question. He just like, just in, 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 in the, in the exact Bill Cosby parameter of, you know, very slow, so I could actually just type every word as he was talking because he talks well enough. And that's part of it. I mean, it probably would have taken a person to talk faster, you know, like half the time. But so I remember all that stuff. I remember, like, the, the kind of funny, interesting stuff. Um, I mean, like, story-wise, you know, at that point, like, I really dug into things like like uh, file sharing. You know, that was a big deal at the time, like Napster and all that stuff. So I remember doing this, like, really comprehensive thing about, like, how people get music sort of in like 2003, 2004 and, and how like, you know, the music industry was trying to shuttle these people down, but you know, the, the people who were leaking stuff online were always like two steps ahead of them. And I talked to a lot of people involved in sort of that fight. Uh, so that was really interesting. So I, I always tried to dig into like topical stuff like that too. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of not at all sports stuff, but those are some things I remember. Jeff Passan, still of Yahoo Sports, helped in a way of, of getting you to go over there and start up with them and with the Big League Stew blog, which you're now the editor for. How tough of a decision was it for you to make that leap into baseball, even though that was something you always wanted to do, but you had already had built up an audience and built up a following, if you will, from what you were currently doing, now having to make a switch into something new that you weren't as familiar with? Uh, you know, it was it was it was somewhat of a decision again. Like it was almost the same the same type of decision I talked about earlier, just kind of in reverse. You know, like I at that point I had a pretty good thing going for myself at the newspaper. Um, you know, I was I was a columnist, uh, which is again another one of my dreams. Like I wanted to be a, a sports writer and a columnist. You know, but I got to be a columnist um, in a different realm, and I really enjoyed that. 
you know, I, I was doing a lot of stuff sort of like in the community. I felt like the, the work I was doing, you know, really had an impact sometimes, you know, and, and the things that, that I would, you know, tangibly see when I went out on the weekend or whatever. So it was, it was tough to some degrees to, to, to leave that alone, you know, but at the same time, like I knew that, uh, you know, Yahoo was, was the better opportunity. Again, like, you know, I knew that it was going to be the better place for me. I knew that they were going to give me opportunities that I probably wasn't going to get to the newspaper. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, like, you know, I, I had some doubts, but um, it was one of those things, again, where you sit and think about it. You're like, yeah, of course I should do that. That's, that's a much better, uh, much better turn. And, and I do owe, you know, a, a debt of gratitude to Jeff Passon because, um, you know, Kevin Kaduk, who was, he was, he's my boss now. And he was the editor of Big League 2 before me. Um, so he's, he's the one who hired me. But I met him through Jeff and uh, actually a few times. And there was a, there was a couple stories that I did at the Fresno Bee um, when we started getting more into blogging. And when we did that, I, I started like opening up what I would write. So every once in a while, I'd write some sporty type stuff. And uh, I got them, you know, like like Big Leagues do linked off to me a couple times. I, I did I did this one story that um, did really well for like everybody about this lady who found this baseball card uh that was like i think i want to say from like 1930 something and it was you know believed to be like one of the first baseball cards ever and um so i wrote about her find and everything and so yahoo picked it up and that was kind of how i got to know um kevin kadek a little bit and she ended up on the tonight show and she was all over the place for a, for a while because she was just this like adorable old lady she was a total character so that, that kind of like was the beginning and, and in some ways interesting it involved the baseball card uh, but it, it was the beginning of me sort of, you know, transferring over to Yahoo um, because they a lot of people knew me as, oh, he's that guy that wrote that thing about that baseball card. And so a lot of people I'd never met, you know, cause, because that story did really well for them and it had done really well for me. At the time, it was the biggest online story they'd ever had. Um, so, you know, like I kind of, like that kind of helped pave my way, I think, and build a relationship with Yahoo. And then when the time came that, you know, my, my, my boss or Kevin Kato, who's now my boss, like he got promoted and then he was like, Hey, you know, it'd be great if, if you were to come over here and take over big leagues too. So that's what happened. And thankfully that lady lucked out because I believe she put that on eBay for only about a dollar or $5 originally that card. And then she started getting bombarded with different offers and people saying this could be worth a lot more than what you originally had it for. So Everybody, yeah, yeah. everybody got the high end of the stick there. What is your typical day to day or week to week like? We mentioned a story like that, something that can go viral, and I know now it's almost something that you have to keep an eye out for. These viral stories, stuff that would bring people to the site, while also writing features or just having fun, really, during the baseball season. What's it like for you typically when you're trying to get stuff together day by day? My my all my days are almost kind of different from each other, depending on like what I have going on, you know. So I I do a few different things at Big Leagues too, you know. I write, um, but I'm also the editor of the site, so I have like staff that I oversee. Um, I you know do video work, so you know there's, there's usually um, a, a day every couple of weeks where I where I'm on the road somewhere to go shoot some videos. Um, you know, there's days where I have to do a lot of like the behind the scenes kind of, kind of boss type stuff. Um, and then there's, you know, like, like last night, for instance, was my night to like work late at night. So, you know, I was up late doing that. Um, and so it just, you know, I feel like every week for the most part is kind of the same, but every day I'm doing something a little different, like whether it's podcast, we do podcasts or 
videos or, or writing. So I, I kind of dip my hands in a little bit of everything. Um, and then we're also always looking for, you know, cool stories to do that aren't just, you know, things in the news cycle. I mean, the news cycle is great. It's obviously, um, you know, what we, our, our daily bread and butter. But, um, you know, I think we're also looking for things to do that are that are a little different um, or, you know, video stuff that, that's kind of unique in our own. Um, so that's, you know, kind of like I try to carve out some time, um, to look for interesting things I can write that, that no one else is writing or that isn't just built on, you know, here's this highlight or here's this thing that happened that people are tweeting about, but, you know, try to dig in and find something that, that might actually start a conversation instead of, um, you know, just us talking about what, what the other blogs are talking about too. I know there's times throughout the season where you're able to travel for some of the higher end or, or more popular stopping points for the sport, whether that's spring training or the World Series or the postseason. But living in the Bay Area as well, are you able to go to the different California stadiums and maybe check out a player or a team if you'd like to for a specific story? How does the traveling aspect of things work as well? Uh, yeah, it's just kind of up to me, I think, to to figure out what I want to do. So, um, you know, I'm looking for stuff to do at, at A's and Giants games. Um, I'll be honest, since, since the baseball card series took off, which I know we'll get to, um, a, a lot of that has been centered around around that. Um, so, you know, most most of the travel is is usually okay. What can we do for for some of our video series, and then you know, what else can I do while I'm there? So for me, it's about trying to trying to find those synergies of okay, let's go to a game. We can do you know these kind of video projects, and then while I'm there, I can also write or report out this story, and then I can write it you know a couple of days later. So um, I'm I'm all about kind of finding those efficiencies and, and making it all work, and and that's a sort of a smaller version of what we do when we go to spring training or to winter meetings. You know, like when we do, it's funny like the the, the We'll get. To, I know like, we haven't really touched the baseball card series yet, but the baseball card thing um, at the winter meetings last year, we we came out of the winter meetings I think with eleven of them, and we shot all eleven of them in one day. So then it was like rolling them out over three months or whatever, you know. So, um, but while I'm there, you know, I, I think the the day we shot all of them was also the day Chris Dale got traded. So like we were about to shoot one, and then it was like, oh, hold on, we need to go do this Chris Dale stuff real quick. And then we'll come back and then, you know, we're going to shoot all these, all these video cards, baseball card segments. And we did. So it's just kind of a juggling act. And, you know, we try to like do the most that we can at these places. So when we go to like the all-star game, you know, we come back from that with, I don't know, 10 episodes of the baseball card segment, three or four other videos. I've written four or five things while I'm there. Um, So it's more and more, I think in, in these days about being able to, um, you know, make all those things work together so that, um, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing the most that I can, uh, when they send me somewhere. Well, I think that's a great segue to get into what I'm sure many baseball fans might know you for. And it's the series of opening 25 year old baseball cards, which to no surprise, it's a very basic title. You open baseball cards (laughs) from the early nineties with former and current managers, celebrities, and the like, with the trade usually done at the end as well. Can you give the story first on how this segment came to be and how you decided this would be something cool for people? Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun story to me. Um, we, had, we have 
you know, we're going to do video stuff. We always have kind of like brainstorming meetings. And I feel like I'm, I never come up with good ideas in our brainstorming meetings, right? I'm always throwing out stuff. I never really am like, ah, it's all right. And uh, so we were doing spring training two years ago. We were trying to come up with some stuff. And that was the first time I'd ever really done a lot of video work where we were going in and I was going to talk to players and I was going to, you know, do these things. And I didn't want to just do, you know, what do you think your chances are to win this year? And, you know, kind of the typical stuff. And I was trying to think of like, what's a good, what's a good interview format that nobody's doing? Like what's something different? And I remember one of the ideas that I kicked out was like, well, what if we, bring in a what if we bring in some video games and like play video games with them and kind of like talk about whatever while we're playing you know like bases loaded or whatever and then i'm like that would be great except for how are we going to bring all that stuff in like where are we going to plug it in like it just seemed logistically like it wasn't going to work you know and that was like the best at that point that was the best idea i had so um you know we go to this meeting and then i'm getting ready to go to spring training i told my wife I said, I promised you, I'm going to, I'll clean the garage before I go to spring training, right? So I'm out there, I think it's like a Friday or a Saturday, and I'm going to spring training in a couple of days. So I'm cleaning the garage, and this whole box of um, baseball cards that, they, they just kind of keep popping up sometimes, because, you know, like I said, my grandma and I collected them, she died, uh, I think in like 2000, 2003, um, and so since then, I've always kind of had, you know, baseball cards that come back. And it's like, oh, here's some more cards that, you know, we found or, you know, when someone moves or something like that. So I had a box. And it was one of those things. I went my life, what are you going to do with all these baseball cards? Because I still have, you know, most of my good baseball cards, most of my box, most of my sets. I still have a lot of stuff in the garage. So then I had to, like, figure out where's all this stuff going to go in there. And I'm going through them. And they're all boxes that are unopened. And I'm looking at them. And I'm like, well, these would be great if they were worth it. You know, they're all, like, kind of late you know, late eighties, early nineties. And I'm trying to put them trying to put them away. And that's just when the idea hit me. I'm like, well, it would be great to open them up with baseball people. Oh wait, I'm going to spring training in a couple of days. So let's open them up with baseball people at spring training. And I I kind of pitched the idea to some people and they're kinda of like, huh? And I was like, no, I think it could be good, you know, like I think that if you if you get sort of that nostalgia and, and you get people to like talk about players and we did the first couple ones. So we did four, uh, the first time. And I think most people were kind of like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we did it with, we did it with Adam Eden and he was cool. Um, the first one we did was with, with Rajay Davis and he was on the Indians at the time. And I just had the box of cards in my hand and he's like, what are you doing with those baseball cards? And I was like, well, we're trying to open them with people. You want to do it? He's like, yeah. So, you know, like I, I needed to the players were into it. It was just about sort of like figuring out the format for the video. You know, like how was it going to be interesting? So we'd open them up, and um, I think I think what we ended up doing, what I think was the, the change that made it really good was, I think the first um, after the first few episodes, the new ones we did, we implemented like okay, let's make a trade at the end. I felt like that gave it like a, sort of a new dimension. So we did the first four, and then I wasn't sure what was going to happen with it. Honestly, like we did them and they were fun, and I was like, oh, that was cool. I liked it. And I thought it was maybe it would just be like a little thing we did for spring training. And um, we did a couple others. You know, we did some at the All-Star Game uh, that year. And then last fall, I was going to do something with um, uh, Fox Sports revolving around like A-Rod and Pete Rose and Frank Thomas and the, their their post-game show in the All-Star and, uh, postseason. And I thought, you know what, maybe we should try the, maybe we should try the baseball card segment with these guys. And I pitched it to them, 
and they were like, yeah, that sounds great. And like, I really wanted to give it A-Rod, right? Because if you can get A-Rod for that, I think it automatically like legitimizes the whole thing. And I thought, you know, it's a really good opportunity for A-Rod to seem, um, to show off how knowledgeable he is. Because like, I knew he was really smart, and I knew he could come off you know, like in a different way than most people thought about him, especially people who read Yahoo Sports. Because if you read you know, our comment section, everybody hates him. So I thought this was a good opportunity for him to kind of you know, show something different. And so we did that one, and we did Frank Thomas. And then all of a sudden, like people noticed this series. And then we're like, okay, I think we have something here. So we went to the winter meeting and then we just started like, okay, we're just going to go, we're, we're diving into this. And I think from the winter meetings last year until now, we've pretty much had one every week since then. We, we may have missed a couple, but that's kind of when it turned into like a thing. And so now, like I was saying earlier, you know, it's one of those things we try to do as much as we can. And we always try to tuck it in with other stuff. So it's like, you know, okay, we're going to go here. Where can we get baseball cards? We're going here. Where can we get baseball cards? Who can we get baseball cards from? And I'm always trying to think of different ideas for guests and, you know, how to expand it and who else to bring on and, and you know, how to make it more fun. And um, we've gotten really lucky, I think, in a couple of ways. We've gotten some fantastic guests. And two, um, I, and I see people say this in the comments, like they think it's all rigged. I swear to God to you, it is not rigged. Like, like baseball cards have been on our side sometimes. Like when Pedro Martinez got his brother, that was fantastic. And it, it was funny. I, you know, I knew that Pedro was playing at that time, but I didn't think he had a baseball card in in that, in that set. So one of my buddies is super duper duper baseball card nerd and he loves Pedro Martinez. So I'm texting him before doing Pedro. I'm like, Hey, does Pedro have a card in 92 tops? Cause I couldn't, I, I couldn't do it just by looking on my phone. And he's like, no, he doesn't, but his brother does. Like, it'd be great if he can get his brother. And lo and behold, five minutes later, he pulls his brother. So it, it was fantastic, man. The baseball cards have been on our side in a few of them. Sometimes they're not, sometimes people get draft attacks, but I think for the most part, like, you know, the cards have, have given us an opportunity to like really do some good stuff. And, that's one thing I like about it. I love that there's no, you know, it's not like I'm curating people and saying, hey, talk about this person. Hey, talk about this person. It really is just whoever comes up in the pack of cards, which I think is what makes it really cool. Yeah, I'll definitely attach the Pedro video to my show notes just because it was awesome when he pulled his brother and then ended up trading him at the end yeah. to you for, for a couple that you had. But that also includes many on the list, the whole list, really, of who you've had as guests and some of the stories that they're able to tell. We mentioned out there, you could probably talk to these guys for a half hour or an hour, just stories from each guy in the card, especially managers that have been around for a long time because – they yeah. they have we, these we, memories that you can't even imagine. We if you watch the Dusty Baker episode, I mean you, it's pretty obvious. We could have busted out an entire box, and Dusty would have wanted to open every single pack. Like he was super, he was super into it. And a lot of these managers are. And what I think is interesting, you can you can kind of see sometimes in the episode where you know they're kind of like not really sure about it because they don't know. So in the beginning, they're kind of skittish, and then they all they have to do is like they open their pack. And they look at a few cards and the first memory comes to them and all of a sudden they smile and they're into it and they really get going. And I think it's happened with the managers. It's happened with like, if you watch the Andre Dawson episode in the beginning, he's kind of like, you know, gruff Andre Dawson, which I mean, that's kind of how he always is. But, um, you know, I think, I think halfway through it, you could tell he started to really have fun. And, um, even, even Buckshaw Walter, Buckshaw Walter is a character, right? I mean, he, he sort of always has this kind of like, angry sarcastic thing going on but if you talk to him like he's actually he's pretty funny and you know, I'm, watching, I'm doing our episode of him and i'm like i can't tell if you actually like hate this or if you love it just because you're so sarcastic and so we get done and then you know i got a text from the pr from the orioles pr people afterwards like 
like, oh my God, Buck loved that. Like he had so much fun. And I think that's what it is. Like, you know, anybody who does it, I think has a good time. Um, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna remember it, uh, something different. It's better than me asking you a bunch of questions about, you know, who's going to be your fifth starter or whatever. And, uh, I think that's what makes it great. And anybody who watches it, I think they're, they're immediately taken back to, to being a kid. Um, so I, I just think it's a, for me, it's something that, that, um, you know, hits on the intersections of what I like, because I've always tried to approach baseball. You know, when I came back to, to covering baseball and covering sports, from a perspective of, you know, knowing that most people who liked baseball began to like baseball as a kid. So if you can, if you can get into the nostalgia, if you can make them feel like they're a kid again, um, yeah, I, I think it's just going to be more fun than, you know, like arguments and, and a lot of the stuff that is um, divisive and, and, you know, is meant to get you angry or whatever. Like there's nothing about 25 year old baseball cards in that. Like it's, it's it's fun like it's something that watch and smile at and i think that i don't know in, in today's internet and in today's sports world like you know, i think we all need a little bit more of that well the question is, is supply from your garage run out do you have to now go to different card shows and stuff to keep the supply going uh no i still have some uh 1993 is going to be a problem though I, I don't have too many 93s but I also have, you know, a good number of other stuff. So I'm kind of wrestling with, like, do I stick with the 25-year thing or do I, like, start doing 30-year-olds next year and go back to, like, 88 or something like that? Because I have, I have some of those. Um, or do I just kind of make it random? Because I have uh, – do you remember – I don't know. I, I don't know how old you are, so you may just give me, like, I'm stupid. But uh, do you remember Rack Packs? I do know of Rack Packs. Ra- the Rat Packs the Rack Packs are the one where – they would go in a rack and there's like three packs attached to each other. Right. And this is like a, a mid eighties thing. So I have a couple like 1987 rack packs, which are the ones with the, with the wood, you know, the wood tops. So that's some of those that I'm just kind of waiting for the right person. And I'm just going to say, screw the 25 year old thing. Like we're just going to do these, even though they're, I think they're 30 years old right now. We're just going to do them because you know, it's a fantastic card. So I'm also kind of wondering about that. Like if it's worth jumping around and being like, all right, let's do some 86. Let's do some, you know, 89 or whatever. I'm not sure, but I, I do know that I, my, my supplies, grandma's supplies, um, are, are not really looking great for us in, in 2018. So we got to figure out what we're going to do there. Well, thankfully, if you had to buy more, I don't think you'd have to go too far into the Yahoo Sports budget to make that happen. So if that it's, day, oh, they're not come, that expensive, man. <laughs> You could probably go to a yard sale that weekend before you're doing one and just find another stack in somebody else's boxes. We were at the, we were at the all-star game recently and the, you know, inside fan fest, they have the, um, you know, the guys who were selling baseball cards and stuff. And, and literally there was a dude who was selling unopened packs for the same card that we were using in our videos. And they were like a dollar each or something. And I'm like, well, if we need any extra, that guy has some right there. <laughs> so, you know, they're not, they're not that hard to find. Um, but it's funny though when people get mad about that. Like some people will watch and be like, "Why are you guys opening these cards? They're not worth anything." Like who cares? And I'm like, "That's exactly the point. Like they're not worth anything, so let's have fun." And uh, you know, some people, some people, I think only see baseball cards as like in like money. You know, like oh, if they're not worth anything, then whatever. And I'm like, no, like it's a. In some ways, it's a time capsule. You know, it's remembering what baseball was back then. 
you have this segment. You've also done, is this a relief pitcher or is this a dude in a band where you'll just go up to random people and show them photos of two different yeah. people and see if they know who they play for. Has this man on the street type stuff for you gotten a little bit easier over the years? Have you gotten more used to it? I know sometimes it's not easy to go from behind the keyboard to having to just approach strangers and maybe get some good video content from it as well. Uh, it has gotten easier. Uh, you know, it's still still somewhat foreign to me, I think. Um, I've you know never envisioned myself being that person, never, you know, trained for any of that stuff. Um I mean, I think I'm lucky that, you know, we kind of talked about me doing the radio a little bit, so that helps. You know, I know I know how to kind of, like, be on, I guess, so it's not like I've, I've never done that. Um, but I think, you know, what the hardest part, and what I think baseball cards has taught me, sometimes it's not just sort of being, you know, able to, like, not be nervous, but it's also the timing. Like, you know, you need to kind of, like, say the right thing at the right time, and if you're talking to somebody else, you need to kind of get out of their way. Um, so, you know, I think, I think some of that stuff, but I've gotten better at it, you know, like I, I feel more comfortable. Um, I think this year at the all-star game, I came back to the all-star game. I told my wife, I was like, you know, I think this is the first time that, um, I, I didn't feel nervous when we were doing a lot of this stuff. Um, I feel pretty comfortable doing the baseball card segment at this point. Some of the other stuff is you know, still kind of strange. Um, you know, having to do the stand up in the middle of the field and just sort of like, Hey, it's my from the other sports and we're doing blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Like that, that still is sort of strange to me. Um, I feel like I'm better when I'm just talking to somebody because I can, you know, I'm obviously good at that. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the first time I had to go in the studio and read teleprompter, that was, that was interesting because I'd never ever done that before. And, uh, I know how to read, but you know, that's also different than, than just reading, you know, it's, it's trying to read and pace yourself the right way and emphasize the right words. And so all that has been, a, has been a, you know, giant learning curve for me. And, um, I'm still not great at it, but you know I've gotten better. And if things keep going well, you're going to be walking around ballparks, and people or players will say, "Hey, there's the baseball card guy." So you're going <laughs> to be getting more well known, and this will become easier and easier. So two actual baseball things before I try and do something fun to close things out with you. What has been the best moment for you as a reporter or just as a fan? I know you got to hang out with the Cubs when they broke their 108-year-old curse, so that's probably up there as well. But also growing up in the Bay Area, getting to watch the Bash Brothers do their thing. Is there a specific game or a specific time, either from what you've covered or what you experienced as a fan, that stands out to you? Uh, I would say the, probably the two most memorable games would, would be the Cubs winning the World Series. I mean, I was... I mean, for, for all of that, all of that that it was, um, the, the game being as crazy as it, it was, and then, you know, just kind of being in the middle of it, I mean, that was pretty fantastic, man. Like, I'm never going to forget, I'm never going to forget that ever, you know, and I have all these fantastic videos on my phone from the clubhouse, and, um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of proud that I did what I thought was a pretty good story that night that nobody else did, where, you know, I captured this moment of, um, you know, Anthony Rizzo and Bill Murray had kind of got, built this friendship, you know, because Bill Murray was always on the Cubs. And at one point, um, the, 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 after they lost that, that, to go down 3-1, Bill Murray came and, and told Anthony Rizzo, you need to drink, um, I forgot, some, some power drink, you know, it's power, not, um, like not Red Bull, but one of those, like a rock star or something. And uh, so then, you know, Anthony Rizzo kind of being the, the way he is, like he did it every, every single game after that. He had one before the game. And they won every single time. So 
you know, Anthony Rizzo celebrating with his dad. He sees Bill Murray, stops, goes and talks to Bill Murray, and, like, gives him props for, you know, like, it was you, you said to do this, and I did it every game, and we won, and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, Bill, I want you to meet my dad, and, you know, this whole thing. So I was just standing there, and I just saw, you know, the entire thing, and I had a video of it, and, you know, I wrote a story about sort of, like, you know, the Bill Murray, Anthony Rizzo relationship, which, which I thought was great. It was fun. It was different. Nobody else did it. Um, and it kind of hit on in my world, you know, when I'm doing, like, I'm good at, like, pop culture stuff, and I like sports stuff. Uh, so that was cool. Like, I'll always remember that, and I always remember kind of having something a little different that I was in the thick of that I saw that nobody else saw. And, uh, that was cool. The other one that, that uh, sticks out to me is the Giants. It wasn't a World, it wasn't a World Series. I think it was the NLCS. The Travis Ishikawa. Um, Homer, you know, after, after Mike Morris hit that homer and then Travis just Kelly hit that one. And I think that was, cause that was just so insane too. I remember just being like, Oh my God, like what happened here? And I, I wrote, you know, it was one of those ones where I had to write, um, kind of rewrite and you know, change what I was doing. And, um, but I felt like it was a, it was a cool moment. Um, it was one of those ones where I was actually recording it as it happened because like, what if it's a home run right here? And then he did a pretty cool video. So that that one sticks out. Um, I've been pretty lucky that I've been to a few clinchers now, and, and you know those are always memorable. If not for the fact that they, you know, screw up your phone a little bit. Um, but you know, I think I think all that stuff is, is pretty neat. Um, going to the All Star game, I, you know, never been to the All Star game before last year. That was pretty fun. I mean, just seeing Stanton do what he did last year, and seeing Aaron Judge do what he did this year in the home run derby. Um, so I don't know. I, I kind of like I kind of like the All Star Game environment. I think it's really cool. So being able to go to that, you know, in person was really neat. We've got the Dodgers on the verge of making history with their wins loss record. Giancarlo Stanton possibly chasing sixty one battles to make the postseason in several divisions. What storyline are you most excited to keep up with or watch as we get closer to October? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think the. It's funny because Aaron Judge was the big storyline, right? And then Aaron Judge kind of fell off a cliff, and now we're all scrambling to figure out what the story is. Even as a, even even though I'm a Bay Area person, even though you know 1988 really hurt my heart, I think it's the Dodgers. I think it's seeing if the Dodgers can can win again. You know, I mean, um, I think there's going to be a little bit of coverage on if they can, you know, get 117 or whatever, which I don't think they will. But um, at this point, you know, the moves they've made they have to win the World Series. And if they don't, it's a failure. It doesn't matter. You know, even if they pull a, pull an Indians and lose in, in Game 7 of the World Series, like, there's not going to be any second-place award for the Dodgers. Like, they have to win. It's been all these years. They spent all that money. Um, everything they've done, like, they need to win the World Series. So I think I think that's kind of the point we're at. It's, it's, it's Dodgers are bust. And, um, you know, they're kind of like the Cubs last year. At, at that point, like, all the hype the Cubs had, if they didn't win, it was just going to be a giant letdown, um, you know. But I think there's there's other stuff beyond that. But I mean, that's the big one. I, I'm I'm really fascinated to see what happens with the Astros because for a while, I mean, they looked like a team, and and now you know they're still the they still have the best record in the AL. But um, you know, the injuries have, have you know hurt them obviously, and, and um, you look at the team and you just don't feel as confident about them. But at the same time, they're fantastic. They're talented. You know, they they could get it all together by the end of September and go on a run. So I, I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens with them and the Nats. I mean, being the fact that they haven't really, um, you know, ever succeeded in the postseason, but they've been, you know, so far ahead out this year that um, they're they're like the Dodgers in the sense that they they kind of have to, you know, and if they get booted in the first round, 
I mean, it's just going to be a mess. And, and you know, the, the Nats could, in theory, go and lose the NLCS, and it's not the end of the world like it would be for the Dodgers. But um, if, if they lose in the first round of the playoffs, man, it's going to be ugly. I wanted to wrap things up with you with some quick-hitting questions from what we've talked about already to some fun ones as well. And what I decided to call easy or pass to go along with a bridge theme of sorts. And any of these could be passed, obviously, but I think we'll have some fun with this or they'll be easy enough. Tell, tell, me, tell me again, you said easy or pass? Easy or pass. So if the question might be something you don't want to answer or don't know the answer, you can pass it. But I think I figured out a couple ones that you'll probably enjoy okay. answering. Like the first right, one okay. is... Have you been able to get Reggie Jackson's autograph since he turned you down after one of the A's games? <laughs> you did you did your research on me, man. Of course, Mike. Um, I have to. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great story. Um, so I, I did get I did get Reggie Jackson's autograph at the time. He just would not sign a baseball card. He said he, he the line was, "I don't smoke, I don't drink, and I don't sign baseball cards." That that was the line he told me, and I was and I, I was I, I was a little older at this point, so I was probably 12, 13. I wasn't like a seven-year-old at that point. And I was just like, wow. All right, Reggie Jackson. So he signed, uh, we got him to sign a ticket or something. He signed that. But uh, yeah, I've never, never since then had any interaction with Reggie Jackson. I, I, I don't know that, I mean, I don't know. My view of Reggie Jackson, everything I've learned after is, is not that he's the, the, um, the nicest guy around. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's got a little more cool. But yeah, never, never had any action with, with uh, Reggie Jackson since then. We have heard that, but I think he would play the card game with you just because he would be on camera for it and could uh, <laughs> maybe pursue himself in a different no, no way. No lie. Someone said yesterday you should do baseball card for Jackson. I said, would he be cool? Would he be into it? Like, isn't he kind of a jerk? So, Reggie, if you're listening, because I'm sure he is, right, Reggie? Absolutely. Uh, you know, let me know, man. Holler at me. Tell me if you want to do baseball cards. The camera's on. He'll definitely do it. And then you could ask him at the end <laughs> if he'll sign one of the cards. Perfect. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> what is your favorite baseball card that you own, or a white whale that you hope to one day own? So this is this is a, a interesting thing. One of the one of the big regrets of my life here. Um, I, I do not have the famous Ken Griffey Jr. baseball card. I've never got it. Um, and I was not I was not one of those people who would go out and like go to the card shop and buy it because I wanted to pull it from the pack. I felt like in order to you know. If you, deserve it you had to pull it and i know that's not really how baseball cards work nowadays but at the time like i you know i would and we would open packs man i remember um my grandma and i one night there was one it was like saturday night i remember and it was pretty it was pretty late like i should have been in bed and we um i think opened like an entire box of upper deck looking for it we didn't get it um so i never i never ever got that card so that's just kind of a trip to me um the favorite card that i ever had was the barry bonds clear rookie um Kind of for the opposite reason, because that was probably the most of, of that era, probably the most valuable card I had. But I had a bunch of those, so I was always like, "Oh yeah, I got all these. I don't got a, I don't got a grippy, but I got all these bonds cards. So I guess I got to roll with bonds on this." And then I remember trading. Um, I, I was doing the trades, you know, back in the day. I traded my uncle because my uncle had a bunch of cards too. He but he never had. He had like earlier than me, so I traded him a bonds rookie for a Cal Ripken rookie, like a good Cal Ripken rookie. And I felt like, well, I got a bunch of bonds, so I can trade him one of those. And he had, he had a bunch of Griffin, so we made, we made the trade. So I like that one too, just because it was it was one that I, you know, I wasn't collecting cards at the time. It was like eighty two, eighty three. So I felt like it was kind of cool to have that card because you know it's kind of before my time. This one gets brought up a lot on the show. Do you have the Billy Ripken card that 
people that know the Billy Ripken car will know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have, I don't have the Billy Ripken car. Although we make, we make that reference in, uh, in, in the series sometimes. Anytime we get a Billy Ripken car, I'm like, it's not that Billy. It's Ripken not car. that one, right? Yeah. So you we know, actually had, uh, we, we got a Billy Ripken. Bob Melvin got a Billy Ripken car, and he was on the Orioles at the time. And when we did the Bob Melvin episode, I thought, I thought he might say something about that. He's like, "Oh, I got a good Billy Ripken story." And I'm like, "Yeah, give it to me, man." <laughs> Hope it involves a baseball card. And it was about him playing Wheel of Fortune or something, so it wasn't about that. So you're the co-founder of the Two Truck Throwdown in Fresno, and there's a monthly radio event as well, Tacos, Brews, and Jams, which is really a dream lineup for people with tacos, beer, and music. How can you go wrong? So I have to ask what your favorite taco is. Uh, like like my favorite place here in town or like my favorite type of taco? It could be both. What Whatever is pulling at your heartstrings for tacos because I know you're probably as big of a fan as I am. <laughs> my favorite type of taco is the uh, alfa store taco. Um, in general, I'm, I'm, I go pork above all. So uh, alfa store wins for me, but I like carne dudes and all that stuff too. Um, my, favorite, my favorite taco in Fresno, and hopefully a lot of Fresno people don't listen to this and get mad at me because I, it's, it's almost like we, we have two that are, that are very like contentious rivals, you know, they've each won our event a couple times and, you know, you, you kind of have to be on one side or the other. And I don't very often say which side I'm on, but I will say it for you. Um, my, my favorite taco is the Autobata taco from La Elegante in downtown Fresno. Uh, it's, it's just, it's amazing. It's so good. And, uh, with, with a shout out to El Premio Mayor, which is our, the other one, they're, they're also really good, but I, I, I roll with, with La Elegante. I guess it's kind of like being a, being a kid in the in the Griffey Bonds era, you know, figuring out like, oh, I like I like Griffey, I like Bonds better. Um, either way, you know, it was it was a good player. Um, but you know, we all had our favorites. What is your go-to or would-be go-to karaoke song? Oh, okay. Um, let's see. I've done karaoke in a long time, so it it might change nowadays. But when I would do karaoke. Uh, it would be, I, I always liked uh, Here I Go Again by Whitesnake. I thought that was a great karaoke song. Um, I, I would do some uh, some Jodeci, Come and Talk to Me. Um, I, I wonder now more, now that there's like a lot more hip-hop options in karaoke, back when I would do that, I was like, wish there was some hip-hop karaoke songs. But I haven't done karaoke in a long time, but there's a lot of hip-hop songs I would probably do. I was going to say, I you would like probably pull out Outkast for at least one, right? I mean, dude, I do love, I do love some outcasts. Um, but at the same time, like it would be hard because Andre 2000 is such a good rapper. Right. You can't actually, you can't actually keep up with him. Um, but I was thinking a good karaoke song might be Ain't No Fun by Snoop Dogg because one, it's a very song people know. People really always get excited for that song. Two, it's very easy to rap with because none of them rap that fast. I mean, it has Warren G on it and he's probably like about the worst rapper you could, you could imagine who has, who's had success. Um, and I'm sorry, Warren G. I mean, technically not good. Interesting dude, made some good songs, but just you know, like I can rap as good as Warren G can. Um, so you know, I, I think I think that would be a good one. Especially if you brought if you if you coordinated it well and brought up like four or five people, I think you could do a very good. Ain't no fun if only you can't have none. Yeah, I think I think I think those are some good answers. That's I would love to do Outkast, but but yeah, I mean uh, Andre. I mean, I, dude, I listen to Outkast like pretty much every day, and I'm always. Um, in awe of how good Andre 2000 is at rapping, so I, I don't have any illusion that I could that I could keep up with his flow. 
it was amazing getting introduced to Outcast on popular radio, obviously, when Hey Ya came out, and then hearing other people be like, you know, they actually do very, very good rap that wouldn't get on radio, but you could listen to their album front to back, which was a pleasant surprise. And it was like, they're great at what they're doing. Hopefully they... You, you, you might be a little young there, because I will say this. When, when Elevators came out, and I don't know if it's just because I, I lived in I lived in the Bay Area, and um, you know we were I think the Bay Area in general is a little more forward thinking, especially when it comes to music. Um, I, but Outcast, Outcast, when I was a kid, was played on the radio a lot. So like Elevators was played. Uh, I'm sorry, Miss Jackson was played a lot. Like I, you know, where I grew up, Outcast, I always felt like they were the perfect mixture of commercially viable hip hop. And also being like good and respected because usually you're one or the other, right? I mean, you don't have too many people who are like, oh, that guy is really talented and really spit. And also people like him, like, you know, popular. Um, nowadays, it almost hardly ever happens. Uh, but Outcast really just walked that line I think, between commercial success and, and, you know, artistic talent. And um, so, again, some of that may, may depend on where you grew up. But at the time, Early on, Outcast, I think, you know, was, was definitely was definitely on the radio. They might not be on the radio today, but you know, in, in the in the in the ATLians days, in the Aquimini days they were. Sorry, I'm a music I'm a music nerd, I gotta do that. Well, I had to throw that out there for you because I knew you were going to have a great <laughs> answer for it. Yeah, I'm twenty seven, so Outcast, at least in NEPA, our first big introduction was speaker box. With Hey Ya and Miss Jackson, as you mentioned, Roses. I remember blasting that, but we missed the boat on like the elevators portion before that stuff. So I had to go back and, yeah, the... and get reinvigorated with Outcast and highly suggest it for pretty much anyone. Favorite poster or item in your childhood bedroom? Uh, I, so I'm going to cheat a little bit because it wasn't in my bedroom, but um, my, so my grandpa had his own business. Um, when I was growing up, and we all worked there. It's like me and you know, my mom, and my aunts, my uncles, and everybody. So I, I would do, at least from the time I was probably 13 years old, I was doing a lot of the shipping stuff uh, with my grandma, with my aunt, and we would do that. And my, eventually, my cousin would work back there. So back in the shipping area, we had this huge um, Bash Brothers poster with McGuire and Seiko uh, dressed up like the Blues Brothers. And you know, Elton Coliseum. Um, it was that. That's the one, man. To me, you know, but recently I feel like all those posters have kind of like got a degree of like pop culture coolness, at least on Twitter and stuff. But that was the one that to us, I mean, in the Bay Area, that was the poster to have. So the last one, I have to bring up the music part of your life a little bit, and you host this show, Osmosis, Sunday nights at nine a little bit of a throwback maybe to college radio in a way that you have to keep up with new music and introduce that to people as well as playing the more popular things and do a great job of getting that out there for people and, and getting new music through their cars or through their ears. Will hosting a weekly radio show and, and doing this and being able to find new music give you a little bit of an added advantage in being the cool dad once your kids become teenagers and get to high school? I don't know, you know, I don't know, I don't know if that's going to, that's kind of up to that, but for me, for me, I mean, that's kind of the, that that's kind of the thing, um, you know, I would hope that I never want to be just the, the old dad who um, is stuck in back in whatever music you listen to, so like, I can give you my, 
my outcast take on AT aliens and equipment. But at the same time, you know, if you want to talk about future right now, we can talk about future. And I can, I, I have some, some things to say about that. Or you want to talk about, you know, whatever, whatever current hip hop stuff is, I can talk about that too. So, so, so it's mostly for me, I think, just to not lose touch of stuff. I feel like there's always a time where, you know, life gets so busy that one of the things you give up on is like, oh, well, you know, do I want to keep up with music anymore? Nah, I just listen to the stuff I always listen to. And I, I just don't ever want to be that guy, man. I always want to at least keep an ear to, to the new stuff and, you know, kind of know what's going on. I don't know if it'll always work, but I think doing radio is part of that. And I've always liked radio. I, I always liked the idea of um, sharing music with people. Uh, the only, the, the one thing on my show is like, you know, unlike most radio, like I pick everything I play. You know, I don't, um, uh, no one tells me what to play. I don't have a playlist I work off of. You know, it's all, it's all me. So I, I pick the songs I want to share with people. So that that's really the reason I do it is because I want to, I want to pick songs that I like and bands that I like and, and, and share it. Not because I'm just trying to like hear my voice on the radio, but it's actually honestly, earnestly about sharing music with people. Well, Mike, thanks so much for the added time. It was great getting to know about how you got to where you are today and then some of the ins and outs of what you actually do. And it's safe to say if I ever end up in Fresno and see you around, I can probably be promised either opening up a new pack of baseball cards or a taco, and there's nothing wrong with either of those <laughs> things. So thanks again. They're, Continued they're both, success they're both with really the good series. things, man. Yeah, it's, it's probably one of the best of both worlds. So continued success with this series, and hopefully maybe we can talk again soon as well about actual baseball. But I enjoyed this a little bit more, just the ins and outs and everything. So thanks again for joining me. Hey, I really appreciate the time, man. I appreciate everybody who listened. If you listened to this far, Thank you. And I hope it wasn't too too overindulgent, but um, hopefully you guys, you guys pick something good out of it. Thanks again for Mike for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our prestigious college newspaper that is no longer in print and can only be seen on a blog, and host for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was heard on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and seen on the Royal Television Network. And since Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins to this segment, but don't worry. There aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films and have a better idea of what will be in store for you if you do so. This week, Joe will break down Spider-Man Homecoming, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as a young Peter Parker navigating his newfound identity as a web-slinging superhero after returning home, thrilled by his experience with the Avengers. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupof-joe.com. Again, that's cupof-dash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. And there this week, you'll also be able to see his rankings of the movies he's been able to see this summer. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Before we get to the review of last month's Spider-Man Homecoming, let's wind the clocks back to the dawn of the franchise. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy kicked off with Tobey Maguire portraying the beloved superhero in 2002. 
the movie undoubtedly helped bring life to the comic book movie genre, and the second installment in 2004 is still seen as one of the greatest superhero movies of all time. However, the Maguire iteration of Spider-Man came crashing down in 2007 with the villain-laden Spider-Man 3, known best for emo Peter Parker dancing in the streets. In an effort to keep the rights to the character, Sony released a reboot five years later with Andrew Garfield, 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man, directed by the appropriately named Mark Webb. It was generally well received, but the franchise would soon relive the mistakes of the past, throwing another three villains into The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Although a success at the box office, the sequel did not live up to the quality critics and audiences were expecting. Enter Marvel Studios. Sony formed a partnership to make Spider-Man a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a move fans clamored for after the misstep of The Amazing Spider-Man 2. In 2016, he fought against and alongside the Avengers in Captain America Civil War. Tom Holland was lauded for his performance in more of a cameo role, but would Sony and Marvel finally deliver on the character with a standalone movie? Let's go to the tape. Let me just say this up top. Tom Holland is the best Spider-Man we've ever had. I enjoyed Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield in the role, but Holland blends the nerdiness of Peter Parker with his transformation into the suit when he becomes Spider-Man perfectly. He's funny, witty, and actually a believable high schooler, unlike his predecessors. We saw him handle this in Captain America's Civil War, so what he needed to show us was if he could handle the dramatic scenes. Once again, Holland delivers. There are key scenes where he needs to show his emotions and go up against Michael Keaton, and he handles them like a seasoned veteran. Speaking of Michael Keaton, I've thoroughly enjoyed his climb back to the top. After disappearing for a time, Keaton eventually returned to form in Birdman and Spotlight in back-to-back -back years. He was nominated for Best Actor in Birdman, and both films won Best Picture. I love him as an actor, and he once again didn't disappoint as the villain, the Vulture. I give a lot of credit to the writers because his character is well-conceived and that his villainous acts are believable. He misses out on an opportunity to clean up the destruction of New York during the first Avengers movie and make a lot of money for himself and his crew because Tony Stark took his contract. So he steals the alien technology in order to provide for his family and the people who work for him. He's not really a bad guy. He's human. And Michael Keaton's down-to-earth acting is perfect for the role which makes Vulture one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe's best villains. From the well-known to the unknown, Jacob Babylon shines in Spider-Man Homecoming. He's hilarious as Peter Parker's best friend, Ned. This is a character that, if mishandled, could be a huge blight on the film, considering the screen time he gets. An annoying performance could have derailed the film, but Babylon fits perfectly and complements Tom Holland so well. Throw in Robert Downey Jr., Donald Glover, Hannibal Burris, and Zendaya, and clearly the acting was a major strength of the film. Also, the screenplay was excellent, but there are a few hiccups. I didn't enjoy the choices made with Flash Thompson, or the fact that Marissa Tomei's only purpose in the film was apparently for people to walk up to her and tell her she's hot. Overall, though, the writing and performances made the movie tick. I also enjoyed the theme presented in the trailer. If you're nothing without the suit, then you shouldn't have it. The struggle more so with Spider-Man than maybe any other comic book character is the balance of the man behind the mask and the everyday teenager. He makes mistakes. Much like Keaton's character, Spider-Man is very human. He has to work through that throughout the film and grow. He's only a kid, and obviously when presented with an opportunity to go from high school nerd to an Avenger, a teen would focus on that and mistakenly forget his other life and loved ones. 
It all culminates when Holland meets face-to-face with Keaton, which is arguably the best scene in the movie. Now, it's not quite a negative, but there are no memorable action sequences in the film. The trailer boasts a scene where Spider-Man is holding together a fairy with a lot of webbing, but upon seeing the film, it's nowhere near the classic train sequence in Spider-Man 2. I also think the action is better in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. Not that Spider-Man Homecoming has poor action, but when compared to other Spider-Man movies, it becomes average and not very memorable. But if the focus was on nailing down the characters, script, and acting, I'll sacrifice the incredible action sequences. The bottom line, Spider-Man Homecoming gave us the character we wanted, and surprised me with how much attention they put on the supporting cast. The script and the acting are also great. The action isn't bad, it's just not memorable. But Spider-Man Homecoming is a film we'll never forget. I'll rank Spider-Man Homecoming as Tim Duncan, in the sense that he's not flashy, but he's great, loved by all, and the exact player that any coach and teammate would love to have. Sexy. Check! Uh, check please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. The Bridge is also available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and on Wednesday nights on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive back into some Major League Baseball, chat about the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.